And as you do, you can open up the scriptures with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we will take some time this morning to consider the other ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We've witnessed baptisms this morning, which is one of the ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ gave his church. The second is the Lord's Supper. And so this morning we're going to take some time to consider the Lord's Supper. And we'll do that by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. For the first part of my life, I played baseball. I didn't make it past 12 years old, uh, past the, the small field in Little League, if you're familiar with that. But I grew up playing baseball for the first several years of my life. And I remember that one of the earliest instructions that was given to me as a budding baseball star was to always keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. When you come up to the plate to hit, the most fundamental instruction, usually, that's given, at least as far as I recall, is keep your eye on the ball. From the moment the ball leaves the pitcher's hand until the moment the bat makes contact with it, you keep your eye on the ball. Because when you take your eye off the ball and you're looking out to left field or somewhere else, prior to making contact with the ball, inevitably, you're going to miss. You're going to whiff. 
and you most likely strike out. The moment you take your eye off the ball is the moment things start to go wrong in baseball. Well, we could make a similar application to the Christian life and say the moment that you take your eye off the cross is the moment that you are going to go astray in some way. The most fundamental instruction given to any Christian, actually any person, the most important instruction you could ever receive is keep your eye on the cross. Do not take your eyes off the cross. The moment we take our eyes off the cross is the moment that all the other elements of the Christian life begin to become unraveled and they fall apart. I'm not saying that the cross is the only thing that matters in the Christian life. All Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God. All Scripture is profitable. Everything that God has said to us is good for us, from Genesis to Revelation, and we need it. But nothing makes sense in any of the books of the Bible if we remove them from the context of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We must keep our eye on the cross well, this morning we are taking, as I mentioned, we're taking some time to consider the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper? And the Lord's Supper is God's way of helping us to keep our eye on the cross. At least it's one of the ways that he helps us do that. He's provided us with lots of different means of grace in the Christian life. One of the means that God has given us to make sure that we never lose sight of the centrality of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the Lord's Supper. Each time that we come to the Lord's Supper, our eyes and our hearts are being directed to the body and the blood of Jesus that were sacrificed for us in his death. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we're being assured that through his death for us, through his sacrifice, we have been made partakers of an eternally gracious covenant with our God. And we need that reminder and we need it often, which is why the Lord has given us the Lord's Supper. And so as we have read in 1 Corinthians 11, the, the primary teaching on the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, we'll take some time now to consider that passage and then broaden it out a bit to, to think about what is the Lord's Supper. And we'll do that by considering the, the background of the Lord's Supper, uh, or in other words, the Old Testament roots of the Old Supper. Where do, the, the Old Supper, the Lord's Supper. The Old Testament roots of the Lord's Supper. Where does it come from? And we'll also consider the purpose of the Lord's Supper and then the attire of the Lord's Supper. What should we wear to the Supper? The background, the purpose, and the attire of the Lord's Supper. So what's the background? In other words, I'm asking the question, where did the Supper come from? When we open up the New Testament, is the Lord's Supper something that's entirely new? Well, in some ways it is. But in many ways, it's not, because we, we can't really understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament apart from seeing its background, its roots in the Old Testament. And so I'll point out two ways that the Lord's Supper finds its roots in the Old Testament. We're considering the background of the Lord's Supper. First, the Lord's Supper is the new Passover meal. The Lord's Supper is the new Passover meal. So to understand the Lord's Supper, we have to go all the way back to the Passover of the Israelites in Egypt. So the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what night was it? The Gospels make it plain to us. Uh, the Apostle Paul says on the night that he was betrayed, he instituted the Lord's Supper. What was the night of Jesus' betrayal? It was the Passover meal. 
We, we read in Luke that as uh, the night approached and Jesus prepared to eat this meal with his disciples, he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus has gathered his disciples together with him in the upper room for the sake of eating the Passover meal that he earnestly desired to eat with them before he suffered. So the Passover then, it refers, of course, all the way back to the Israelites' slavery in Egypt when the Lord said to them, take the blood of a lamb, and sacrifice, well, sacrifice a lamb, and then, and then take its blood and put it on the doorpost of your homes. He said this to his people Israel. He said, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost of your homes, and I'm going to come through this, I'm going to come through Egypt, and, and every home on which there is blood on the doorpost, my judgment will pass over. But any home that, that doesn't have the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost, my judgment will fall on that home, and there will be death of the firstborn. And so the Israelites, they put the blood on their doorposts, and they were spared from the judgment of God. And it was through that act of the Passover that God delivered his people out of slavery. The next morning, Pharaoh demanded that the Israelites leave Egypt. And every year then, after that, the Israelites were supposed to remember the Passover. So we have phrases like, remember the Alamo. The Israelites had, remember the Passover. Don't forget what God has done for you on the night of the Passover, through the blood of the Lamb, when he delivered you out of Egypt. But in the upper room, Jesus instituted a new Passover. Normally, at the, at the Passover supper, someone would take bread, the unleavened bread of the Passover feast. He would take the unleavened bread, and as he prepared to distribute it, he would say something along the lines from Deuteronomy of, this bread is the bread of affliction of our grandfathers. When they came out of the land of Egypt, this bread is the, the blood of the, of the affliction of our grandfathers when they, when they came out of the land of Egypt. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? That's probably what the disciples were, were expecting. So picture the upper room. You've got the 12 disciples with Jesus. He's, he's prepared this Passover meal for them. He takes the bread every year of their life. They have most likely heard something along the lines of, this bread is the bread of affliction of our grandfathers when the Lord delivered them out of Egypt. But this time, on the same night, Jesus, sitting with his disciples, he takes the bread and he says, he, he breaks it, prepares to distribute it, and he says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. What's Jesus saying when he does that? Why, why does he take the old traditional words of the Passover and replace them with the words, this is my body? The bread that I'm distributing, this, this represents my body, which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Jesus was instituting an entirely new Passover meal. And he was doing that because he was making clear a far greater exodus is about to take place on the next day. Because a far greater Passover lamb is about to be slain for the salvation of God's people. 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul, he, he says, For Christ our Passover, he says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. He calls Christ the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. Jesus is saying, I am the Passover. I'm the Passover lamb. I am the one who's about to be sacrificed for the salvation of God's people, that judgment might pass over you. I'm about to accomplish a far greater exodus. Now, every time you take this bread, Every time you eat it, it's a picture of me. 
It's a picture of the deliverance that I have accomplished for you, a deliverance far greater than the first exodus. And so that's, that's one of the, the, the important backgrounds of the Lord's Supper. It's, it's a new Passover meal. But it's also a new covenant meal. It's not just a new Passover meal, it's a new covenant meal. In the Old Testament, when covenants were made between two parties, they often ate a meal together as a formal acknowledgement, a confirmation that they have entered into a binding agreement. And so we have something like that sometimes with a handshake. If you and I agree on something and we agree that I will do a certain job for you and you will pay me a certain sum of money for that, rather than writing out a full contract and signing it, sometimes we just shake hands. And when we shake hands, it's our way of saying, I agree that we are now formally entering into an agreement with one another. And that's what a covenant meal was. Whenever two individuals or two parties entered into a covenant together, they sat down and they ate and they drank as a sign that they had formally agreed upon the covenant. It was a confirmation of their agreement. And we saw that in Exodus 24 when Sean read from there earlier. In Exodus 24, we see an example of a covenant meal. God has just redeemed his people out of Egypt. He has just given them the stipulations of the covenant. The people agree that they're entering into this covenant with him. An animal is sacrificed. The blood is sprinkled on the altar and on God's people. And then what do they do? Moses and the elders, in the presence of God, they sit down and they eat and they drink as a sign, as a seal, as a confirmation that they have entered into this covenant agreement with God. And that's the template for our understanding of the Lord's Supper. What happens when we come and we eat the bread and we drink the cup together? It is a new covenant meal. Just as the meal of the old covenant was was meant to demonstrate the the formality, the, the confirmation of the Israelites entering into a binding covenant with God, the new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, is the reassurance to ourselves and to God over and over again that we have entered into a binding new covenant with him. This is why Jesus says in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, if you still have your Bibles open there, Paul quoting from Jesus, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This, covenant is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Obviously referring back to Jeremiah and the prophets who, who promised a greater covenant was coming. One that would secure forgiveness of sins. One that would make us clean forever. And would establish an unbreakable relationship of grace with our Heavenly Father. Jesus is saying, this new covenant is the covenant that I am about to seal by my blood. And every time we drink the cup, every time we eat the bread, we're participating in that new covenant meal. We are, we are reassuring our hearts over and over again that we have now been brought into this gracious covenant with God and that every blessing promised in that covenant is ours. The full forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ, union with Jesus forever, eternal life, an inheritance of the, of the kingdom, everything promised, every spiritual blessing that is promised in the new covenant is ours because of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And when we come and we drink and we eat, we're entering in once again to that assurance that we are in that covenant with our Father because of the shed blood of Jesus. And so that's the background of the Lord's Supper. It is the new Passover meal. It directs our attention to the true Passover lamb who was slain for a far greater deliverance, 
than the deliverance out of Egypt, and it's also the new covenant meal meant to reassure our hearts over and over again that by faith, every promise of the new covenant is ours through our union with Jesus. What about the purpose of the supper? That's the background. What's the purpose of the supper? What does Jesus intend to accomplish in you and in us every time we come and we eat and we drink? What's its purpose? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, it makes clear there are two primary purposes to the Lord's Supper, remembrance and proclamation. Remembrance and proclamation. We take the supper to remember and we take the supper to proclaim. Twice we read that it's for remembrance. In verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, quoting Jesus, he says, he broke the bread and then Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he did the same thing with the cup. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is for remembrance. Many of us, I hope, uh, well, maybe not everyone is like me, but some of us are probably aware of how easily we forget things. And so some of us have to do things like put our keys in the refrigerator on top of food at the office so that we don't forget to take that food home with us at the end of the day. And I think many of us probably put every appointment and every obligation and every grocery list into our phones so that it reminds us because we're going to forget what was the appointment, when was it, what was I supposed to buy at the grocery store. We, we forget, and we need things that remind us and help us to remember. We know ourselves, and so we know that we're prone to forget. But Jesus also knows us. In fact, he knows us better than we know us, and, and he also knows how prone we are to forget what matters most, even to forget him, even to lose sight of him and of his death. And so knowing us and knowing our proneness to wander and our proneness to forget and our proneness to get distracted and our proneness to fall into unbelief and into doubt, knowing us, he gave us the Lord's Supper as a, an opportunity to physically pause, to every, everything else in life put aside for a moment, to physically pause and to physically direct our eyes to something that we can see and feel and taste and consume in order to remind us of himself. He knows that we're prone to forget, and so he essentially tells us when we come to the Lord's Supper, here's your reminder. Remember me. Don't forget me. And we should keep in mind that when he says that we're to remember him, it's not like remembering some long-lost friend from our past. So in one of our closets in our house, I have two hand-woven ponchos from northern Peru. Very nice. And they were gifts given to me from a couple good friends of mine, Nicomedes and Urbano, in northern Peru. And, and when I see those ponchos, I think about the years ago that I was with those two men in northern Peru. And the friendship we had and the things we did together, and I can have very vivid memories of being there with them. But no matter how much I look at those ponchos, Nicomedes and Urbano continue to be very faraway friends in a distant land that I haven't seen for years. I remember certain things about them, but they're not here with me. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're remembering Jesus not as a long-lost friend who's, who's done something great for us in the past, but now is, is, is in some distant land far away in heaven. Instead, we remember him as one who, by his own spirit, is present with us in the remembrance. 
Jesus has promised to be with his people when we gather. In a sense, the Lord Jesus presides over the table, and he is extending the invitation to us to come and to sit at his table this morning. And as we sit at the table with the Lord Jesus Christ himself present by his spirit, he feeds us, he nourishes us through faith as we see and remember and believe the evidence of his sacrifice for us. And so Jesus is He's telling us to remember, but he's also assuring us, as you remember, remember, I'm present with you. This is my body, this is my blood, and he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we remember Christ as a present Savior. We also proclaim Christ. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim our Lord and his death. In other words, if someone wants to know, what's the church all about? What's Christianity all about? Really, they don't have to look any further than than the table that's going to be spread out here in just a little bit. Because at, at the table, everything that is foundationally central to the Christian life is visibly seen and proclaimed. At the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming every time we take through the bread and the cup that Christ has given himself to pay the eternal debt of our sin that we could never pay. And every time we come and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're proclaiming that this same Savior who's represented here in the table is offered to every single person who would come and would believe. Everyone who is weighed down by the burden of their sins, the, the supper proclaims to them, Come and eat and drink. The body and the blood of Jesus have been sacrificed for you. If you would come and you would eat and you would drink in faith for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. And so we remember, but we also proclaim every time we eat the bread and every time we drink the cup. And then lastly, what's the proper attire for the supper? We've seen the background of the supper in the Old Testament. We've considered the purpose to remember and to proclaim What's the proper attire for the Lord's Supper? And we're Reformed Baptists, so obviously the proper attire is a nice tie and a jacket. (laughs) What's the spiritual attire that we should wear to the Lord's Supper? Whenever whenever there's a a dinner celebration, say a rehearsal dinner, usually there's some explanation of the expectation for the dress for that dinner. Usually with the RSVP, we'll read something along the lines of formal dress or formal attire or casual And no one wants to show up at a dinner party wearing the wrong thing. You don't want to show up at a formal rehearsal dinner wearing cut-off jeans and a a t-shirt. And at the same time, you don't want to show up at a a casual uh, get-together wearing a three-piece suit or a tuxedo. We always want to be dressed appropriately for the occasion. So what's the appropriate dress? What's the appropriate, appropriate attire for the Lord's Supper? What should characterize our hearts and our minds as we come to the table, eat the bread, and drink the cup? Well, first, we should be dressed in thoughtful reflection. We should be dressed in thoughtful reflection. In other words, we shouldn't come to the table carelessly or thoughtlessly. We read about what it looks like to come to the table carelessly and thoughtlessly in 1 Corinthians 11. The the Corinthian church was a mess, if you didn't get that picture from 1 Corinthians 11. And if you're not familiar with the rest of the book, they're a mess, kind of like us, They're a mess in a lot of ways. They're sinners in need of grace. We're sinners in need of grace. But when they came to the Lord's Supper, they were coming without any consideration of what was taking place. 
They, they were, if you recall from what we read, there was a meal preceding the formal, uh, the formal celebration of the Lord's Supper. There was often a meal that they shared together before someone would formally stand up and uh, announce the, the taking of the supper together. There was a meal, and during that meal, the rich were refusing to give any food or drink to the poor. Some were over here getting full and getting drunk at, at church. Others were over here carelessly, uh, sorry, uh, totally forsaken, having no food, no provision, no drink. They were hungry. Probably on the one hand, you had the rich who showed up early for the meal, and they started eating and drinking before those who were poorer, the slaves, the servants, were able to come and join. And, and they weren't able to bring anything with them. But rather than giving any food to the, to the poor, the rich kept it all to themselves. They got full and drunk, and the poor were left hungry and empty. And then, in the midst of this divided church where there was obviously no unity, no concern, no regard for one another, no consideration of what they were doing when they came and they ate the bread and drank the cup that represents the precious body and the precious blood of Jesus, there was no consideration of any of that, and they just jumped right into it. They ate and they drank. Without any reflection, without any repentance, they ate and drank as a sign of their union with Christ while they all the while, were despising Christ by despising the members of his body. Paul says that's not how we're to come to the supper. In fact, he says that because they were doing that, they were treating the body and blood of Christ as something that was worthless because they had no regard for the blatant, unrepentant sin in their lives. They were treating the body and blood of Christ as worthless. And he says as a result of treating the body and the blood of Christ as worthless, they were being disciplined by God, ultimately for their good, that they might not be condemned, but they were being disciplined. Some were sick, some had even died among them. And so we should come not thoughtlessly or carelessly, like the Corinthians were doing, but we should come with thoughtful reflection. That means taking a moment to pause and, and to consider, what does the bread mean? What does the cup mean? As I pick up the bread... And as I drink the cup, there's nothing special in themselves about those elements. The Bible nowhere teaches that the bread is literally the body of Christ or the, the drink is literally the blood of Christ. There's nothing inherently special about the elements, but what gives them their value is what they point to. They are reflecting, they are visible representations of the, the literal body and blood of Jesus. And every time we pick that up, every time we consider what it means, we ought to pause and think, this is my Savior. He shed his blood for my forgiveness. He left heaven to come down to earth to live as a man and to suffer and to die a cruel death in my place under the wrath of God. This is what the bread and the cup represent. And we ought to pause and think, this is what we're doing. We're remembering the Lord Jesus Christ, his body and his blood that was given for us, that was shed for us. And so healthy reflection looks like remembering what the, what the elements represent. It also looks like examining our own hearts, taking a moment to pause and reflect on whether we're living in a way that genuinely re reflects true fellowship with Jesus. And all throughout church history, this has been taken to an extreme that's unhealthy. We, we, we do want to take time to examine our hearts to really consider, am I living in repentance and faith? Is my life reflecting genuine fellowship with Christ? But we don't want to take it to the extreme of thinking, unless I spend 
five hours prior to coming to the supper, searching every little detail of my life and making sure that I've not left any little thing out, then I have no right to come to the Lord's Supper. That's not what, that's not what Paul is saying when he says examine yourself. You want to give an honest evaluation. Am I walking in fellowship with Christ? Does my life look like someone who knows him, who's believing in him, who's trusting in him? And then as we do that, we, we consider what the elements represent. We consider, is my life being lived consistently with my profession? If sin is exposed in that moment as we reflect on ourselves, we repent. We confess. We acknowledge before God that we have fallen short. And then we look to what the supper represents, which is the body and blood of Jesus. And we remember, yes, I'm a sinner who has fallen desperately short of the righteous standard of God again and again. But I'm also forgiven and washed and made clean because of the very thing that the supper represents. And so the Lord's Supper is not for those who are worthy to come because no one's worthy to come. So self-examination is not trying to make sure that I've not sinned this morning. Self-examination is making sure that any sin I see in my life, I am handing over to the Lord in repentance. And I'm coming believing and trusting again and again that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for my forgiveness. So there's a healthy reflection, but we want to avoid the unhealthy introspection. The Lord's Supper is not intended primarily to direct our eyes to ourselves or even to our own sin. That's not what it's primarily for. That's a necessary step in coming to the Lord's Supper, that reflection on ourself and on our sin. But that's only in order that we might rightly and truly behold Christ in the Lord's Supper. And so the point of the Supper is to remind us that Jesus came to die for unworthy sinners like us. That's what the whole picture here is, that we need forgiveness. And so we come acknowledging our sin, confessing it, but then also coming confidently because we believe that the death of Jesus really is sufficient for us. And so we should come dressed in thoughtful reflection. Secondly, we should come dressed in thankfulness. When Jesus broke the bread, we also read that he gave thanks for it before he distributed it. Now, if you're like me, you've probably prayed before a meal without really giving much thought to the prayer. You've probably given thanks to God for the food without really thinking about all that much about what you're saying. It's just kind of the routine you go through before you eat a meal. Is that what Jesus is doing when he gives thanks on the Passover night as he distributes the bread? Is he just mindlessly giving thanks as we do before a common meal? Well, certainly not. As Jesus breaks the bread, he's fully aware of what's represented there. This is my body, which is going to be sacrificed for you. And as he remembers the sacrifice that he's about to give of himself for the salvation of sinners, he gives thanks. And surely as he gives thanks, what was on his mind was not just the suffering that the broken bread represented, but also the reward of that suffering that the broken bread represented. As Jesus broke the bread, which was a picture of his body being ripped apart on the cross, and as he distributed it to his disciples, he was also remembering these are going to be redeemed as a result of this. And not only these, but through my sacrifice, I'm going to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so as he broke the bread, he gave thanks because he knew what was on the other side of the cross. And as those who live on the other side of the cross, we're able to look back and we're able to give thanks because we see what Christ has accomplished for us. If Jesus gave thanks before his suffering, should we not now give thanks far more in the aftermath of his suffering, following his resurrection in the assurance that we are now fully pardoned by his blood? Everything that was needed to purchase our redemption 
has been accomplished through the suffering of Christ. And so as we come to the supper, we come not like those in a funeral procession, mourning and dreary and somber, but we come with sober joy and thankfulness. Jesus has accomplished everything needed for our salvation. We come remembering that and celebrating it with thankful hearts. And then we also come with a sense of our unity. We come dressed with a sense of our unity. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, we read, Is not the cup of blessing which we share, which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we take the bread together, we're being reminded we are one body because we're taking one bread together. This is the body of Christ that unites all believers. And so as we come and we eat, we're also remembering this same body unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then lastly, we come with anticipation. As often as you do this, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the taking and remembering is also a proclamation that he's coming again. And one day we're going to sit in the presence of the king, not seeing him through faith, but actually seeing him physically, literally in the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth with us as we feast with our Savior. And so the Lord's Supper is, is kind of like a rehearsal dinner. It's giving us a taste. It's preparing us for what's to come. And so every time we eat it, every time we drink it, we're also remembering this is just a picture. We are longing for the real thing. We're longing for the day that Christ comes and he ushers in the new creation and we sit down with him at his table and we feast with our king. Sam, Sam Renahan, a pastor uh, out in California, he writes, The Lord's Supper is the church's collective confession of its hope that Jesus is returning. And that we want every celebration of the Lord's Supper to be our last. As we take the bread and, and cup, we are longing for this to be our last time doing this together. Because hopefully by the time the next month comes around and we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus will have returned and we'll be eating it in his presence. And so we come to the Lord's Supper with the anticipation and expectation of his imminent return. So to conclude, just a couple of comments then as we do now come to the table together. As I've said, the Lord's Supper represents our unity with Christ, the bond that we have through faith with Jesus. And so as that's the case, it's only for those who are in fellowship with Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've not put your faith in Christ, not turned from your sins to trust in him, then we would ask that you not come to the table to eat and drink. The Bible makes clear that it is only for Christians, those who are walking in fellowship with the Lord. But once again, the table is a proclamation. It's not just a remembrance, it's a proclamation. And so as we take it together, even if you're not a Christian, then, then recognize that what's being proclaimed to you today as you witness the Lord's Supper is the message of the gospel, that Christ shed his body and his blood for sinners just like you, and that the same Savior who's, who's represented here is offered to you if you would come in faith and repentance, to trust in him. But if you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and we would include in that if you have a meaningful relationship with a local church, uh, so if, if you're involved with a church body, then we would encourage you to, to come and, and take of the Lord's Supper in faith and rest and remember in the assurance of all that Christ has done that his blood and his body are sufficient for your forgiveness. 
And so may the Lord use the supper this morning, the bread and the cup, to help us remember what really matters, to keep our eyes on the cross, to remember that the death of Christ is the foundation, the sole basis for all of our hope in the Christian life. In just a moment, I'll pray, and as I do pray, uh, Megan will come and play the piano, and as she does that, we can begin to make our way through the line, take the Lord's Supper, and once everyone has been able to do that, we'll stand together and respond by singing Behold the Lamb. So let's pray together as we prepare to take the supper. Our Father, we do thank you for everything that is represented here in the bread and in the cup. We thank you that it is a reflection, on the one hand, of our unworthiness to be called your children, that it would take a sacrifice so great as the shedding of your son's blood to make us your own. God, we pray that you would help us to have a sober sense of the weight and the reality of Christ dying for us. And at the same time, Father, we pray that you would give us a sense of the joy and the peace and the assurance and the hope that comes from seeing Christ, our Savior, displayed in front of us in all of his wonderful love and humility, that he would take our place beneath your wrath and die for us, and that we would be redeemed through his blood. God, would you cause our hearts to be thankful today and to worship you and be glad in the salvation that you've given us through your Son. And we do pray, God, for those who are outside of Christ, who are still not trusting in him and not resting in his sacrifice. We pray that you would work faith and repentance into hearts that everyone would see their great need for a Savior like Jesus. We pray all of this, Father, trusting that as we come and take and eat and drink, you will nourish our souls by your grace through your Spirit as we do it in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.